Welcome to IB Talk, the leading podcast for the insurance industry across Australia, New Zealand, and throughout the Asia Pacific region. Brought to you by Insurance Business. Hello, and welcome back to IB Talk. I'm Danny Wood, news editor of Insurance Business Australia. Robin Nisbet is director and founder of Armstrong Nisbet Insurance Brokers, a Sydney based family brokerage with half a century of history including arranging insurance for the construction of the Sydney Opera House. Earlier this month, BMS Group, the global specialist insurance and reinsurance firm, announced its acquisition of Robin Nisbet's insurance brokerage. So it's a good time to get Robin on the show to talk about the acquisition, some of his firm's history, and what's next for him. Robin Nisbet, welcome to IB Talk. Thank you, Danny. I'm pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Now, this BMS deal is still pretty fresh. I expect you're busy updating colleagues and clients about it. What's been the reaction to it so far? The clients basically are accepting the changeover because they consider that that I will still be working with Belinda and with uh, BMS particularly to grow BMS's business. I mean, that's the issue here, that one of the reasons that we uh, decided to sell was that the business has been growing so quickly, we needed a partner who was going to be um, there. And so I see myself being part of that growth pattern as well. I still have a, a wide range of uh, uh, potential customers and I'm not sort of hanging up my shingle and stopping work. Um, Danny, I'm, I'm actually proposing that, that I will work with, with BMS to uh, develop more uh, more business. The interesting thing for me, of course, is that um, we've been in the insurance broking business for a very long time. And over that period, we've had a lot of uh, discussions with various different uh, major groups. And in fact, at one point, we actually merged with a company called Hog Robinson, Lisbeth, way back. So when I met uh, Andrew, it was in September. And by March, we had concluded the uh, very satisfactory uh, deal with BMS. So all I can say is that um, it's been an exemplary negotiation as far as we're concerned. We've advised our clients uh, and they have been particularly supportive. We've explained to them the benefits of uh, the global BMS group and every client basically has agreed to sign the letter of appointment and move across to BMS. Uh, One of the key factors, of course, was the continuity of Belinda and myself in terms of uh, this uh, transitional period. Mm, So you're a family brokerage, though. I imagine you probably have, I guess, in a way, two negotiations to do in this sort of process, one with your family to get them on board and one with BMS. I mean, did any concerns come up? Because you've been a family brokerage for such a long time. Um, Obviously, there were key considerations, um, one of which was the fact that my daughter Belinda basically is very highly specialised and has been involved with the major corporations that we have, which are now global, and she has a very uh, high level of background in renewables. Basically, our major concern was the well-being of our clients and the continuity of the service that we gave as a family company, and that's been Belinda is joining BMS in a senior role, and that means that we can have the continuity. So from the family perspective, it's business as usual. It simply means that 
we have we are now owned effectively by BMS. You sound very youthful talking here on on the wireless, so to speak. But I, I imagine it's also a time in your career when you're probably maybe getting focused on other things. Was that part of the reason for this deal too? I have to tell you that there's someone upstairs that basically dictates the length of one's <laughs> career in insurance. <laughs> okay. It's a timing issue, and it's one that basically I'm focused on ensuring the most positive transition of, of our business clients to uh, BMS. And what I do after that is um, is a moot point. I mean, I've agreed to uh, I've agreed to, to support Andrew. So, so there's there's no end point at this point. Um, it's just, I guess, you'll decide that down the track. Yes, we, 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 I'll be a consultant for a period of time. Mm. You, you mentioned valuable service, and I was, um, uh, I guess, impressed and tickled to know that your brokerage was involved in insuring one of the construction phases of the Sydney Opera House back in the mid-70s. How did that come about? Well, basically, when I arrived in Australia, I didn't uh, know anybody, and uh, we, I was, had worked in Lloyd's. But I happened to meet... One of the most important people in my career was a guy called Don Duncan, who had a broking company that he'd set up with his father. And it was sheer happenstance that he had a particular affinity for Lloyd's, Lloyd's brokers, the construction business. And um, he simply said to me, look, uh, I can't afford to employ you, but um, if you're interested in in looking at the third stage of the opera house, if you can persuade them that this is a good thing, um, go and talk to them and, and we will continue from there. So I actually went down to the construction site, had a discussion with the, um, the manager who was Corbett Gore for Hornybrooks. We decided to, um, it was a reinsurance of the government insurance office because basically all of the government projects uh, were insured, directed through the GIO. So we basically placed it in Lloyd's uh, with the marine market under shipbuilding clauses, and uh, that was a huge uh, success. So it was from that experience that we basically built the business subsequent to Armstrong Nisbet business. Can you take us back in time a bit? Because I imagine a lot of listeners, Sydney, I mean, Sydney, apart from the Opera House, has transformed since then. What, what was it like walking down to the Sydney Opera House under construction. I mean, how how complete was it when you were looking at insuring it? Well, the railway sheds were still in place. It was an open construction site. The cranes were still up. The shells were being uh, created, which was the third stage. It was a long walk. It was very hot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it wasn't a huge. There were, it was. It was. It was an open site. It, uh, there wasn't any uh, anything to say except that it was it was it was very much in its beginning, uh, second or the third phase. Yes, I mean Sydney was still as it used to be in the sixties, where a lot of the government buildings in Bridge Street and Pitt Street and all of that were still in place. Uh, so behind Circular Quay, there were really only the AMP and the Goldfields House, which had just been completed. Apart from that. Practically no high-rise buildings. And in hindsight, to anyone listening now, this this would be like a dream job for a broker. But I mean, back then, the Opera House, I suppose, had probably got over its more difficult phase of being in debt and going over budget. But was it 
was it in some way something you thought, oh, God, how am I going to do this? Or was it something that you were really excited about and optimistic about from the beginning? It was one of the most spectacular opportunities that any broker in the world could have had. The Watson had been replaced by a group of architects, Peter Hall. Hornibrooks were probably one of the preeminent construction companies around. Arup were one of the most spectacular emerging engineers. Um, Malocco and the, the assembly of all of those parties, all of those contractors to provide this iconic building, which was pretty well built by hand. It was a new design and they had to reinvent a whole range of things. It meant that from an insurance perspective, we continually had to monitor the progress, be in touch with the minister, Davis Hughes, and also the Marine Markets and Lloyds. And so it was a it was a partnership that enabled me to really understand how the construction business worked in Australia with the best possible people teaching me. So from many perspective, it laid the foundation for all of the future success of the Armstrong Lisbeth business in the construction field. Mm, and, and did you actually get to meet the famous architect, Jorn Utzen? Was he, he part of the had, talks? He had gone by then. Ah, okay. So he was completely out of it. They were having to redesign everything. And that was the, the, that was the complexity from an insurance perspective was that the design had been changed midway through the construction. And, of course, the underwriters were very uh, interested to ensure that, they, that the new design basically wasn't providing uh, excessive risk. And from your perspective, looking back on it now, uh, I mean, is that the, the best project you've ever done in terms of, um, I guess, its importance for the country? I know you've done a, a few others that are probably pushing, pushing the envelope a bit too. Without any doubt, it was unique, both in the composition of the building itself, its design, and the people who constructed it. It was just a world team, and I'm proud that we were we were part of it. And and take us on from there. So, what what happened to your to your firm after that? Tell us about a few of the other jobs you've done. After that, we 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 insured the eastern suburbs railway for the construction of the tunnel from. Uh, from uh, Martin Place to uh, Bondi Junction. And that was an extremely interesting project simply because um, they were using a tunnel boring machine. It was an Italian construction company who specialised in that particular area. And, of course, um, the tunnel boring machine, when it was taken out, when the tunnel was completed, is now in Appin in a coal mine at the bottom of the, the, uh, of the shaft uh, where it's been written off by the underwriters and cost a million dollars. So when Snowy 2.0 came up the other day, Danny, I had to laugh because <laughs> if anybody's got the experience of just exactly how complex it is to operate these uh, tunnel boring machines, then we certainly have a, a very good knowledge. And that was in Sydney Sandstone. So you can imagine what we looked at when we saw the um, 2.0 in, uh, in the Snowy. Well, we'd also had a fair amount of experience as well. So, so what are what are the challenges? It's simply the the hardness of the rock. Is that the the tough thing? About no, it's the it's not the hardness. It's the it's the it, it's where they uh, reach decomposed or inferior rock, and it collapses. So they have to then either inject it with uh, ice 
or with um, other kinds of additive to ensure that the, the tunnel boring machine can, can continue to, uh, to progress. And then they shore it up with RSJs after that as, as it progresses along the tunnel line. So it, it's interesting that in Milan, which is a very, very poor quality uh, geology, that they use this uh, um, ice injection system because it's pretty well granular at mud to actually create the uh, underground tunnel system in uh, in Milan very successfully, the Italian contractors, Cadova. So the risk management was pretty complicated by the sound of things. It was. What Armstrong Lisbeth has done is to ensure that we really understand exactly what the client and customer is, business is, and the people in it and their expectations and their attitudes, because obviously their competence and everything else is is very relevant to the outcome in terms of the underwriting experience. Let's move on to, let's go back to London, because that's where you started your career Mm. for an underwriting syndicate. But, But how did you actually get into insurance in the first place? Well, I have to tell you, Danny, in those days, there wasn't such a thing as executive search. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my family had a shipping business, and one of the um, essential parts of that shipping business, of course, was insurance at Lloyd's. But Lloyd's insured the ships when they were being built. It was an integral part of the, um, the family business. When I left school, they had stopped national service, so therefore there was a situation where you either went to university or you went to work. And so the opportunity came up for me to join a syndicate in Lloyd's and sight unseen, basically I turned up nine o'clock one morning in Lime Street and um, and that was it. <laughs> wow, so what, what year was this? 1960, actually. Gus, so was that an intimidating experience for a, a young man back in those days to turn up to Lloyd's of London? Not really. I, uh, I, uh, I was waiting for a huge crowd of people to, re- to recognize my imminent arrival, and all I was missing was the cat for Dick Whittington. <laughs> Unfortunately, when I actually arrived, no one seemed to notice or care. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. <laughs> so, so what happened to your family's shipping business? Is that still going? No, um, basically the shipping business was uh, primarily it uh, shipped dry bulk carriers from uh, Sydney to China for the wheat trade. And um, in the 1970s, the oil crisis occurred and they, the Greek ship owners who had much bigger ships simply uh, cleaned them out and sucked in wheat as opposed to oil. So the commercial viability of the um, the domestic um, merchant fleets in in the UK simply withered on the vine. But I suppose did that set up your links to Australia? Did that help you move afterwards here, or, or is that a separate story? No, it was it was at the time Australia was the place that was really going. In Lloyd's, of course, we wrote a lot of business out of Australia, and so I was predisposed to to go to Australia. I didn't know anybody and I had no um, expectation that, that I would actually stay in Australia necessarily. But there were a lot of people in Lloyd's, a lot of people in, in the UK who basically 
could sense a change coming. There was going to be some serious problems in, in, in England, not that we sort of anticipated it. But there was a huge amount of optimism in terms of, of going out and doing something in the world. So a lot of people came to Australia at the time, uh, like me, and um, built very successful businesses in real estate and various different. It's interesting you say that because I, I suppose a, a lot of, I guess, intellectual types, I'm thinking um, Germain Greer and that, gosh, I, his name escapes me right now, but seem to be a, a, people who were into sort of arts and literary stuff went to England from Australia during the 60s, but people of a business mind were coming to Australia from England for the opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of English companies were setting up in, in Australia post uh, in, the, in, the, in the 60s. There was a lot of, a lot of uh, very few of the major brokers were in, 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 in Sydney when I arrived. Marsh weren't here, for example. Aon weren't here. Stenhouse was, but in a small way. Um, Sedgwick's. It was a, a period when the opportunities for broking companies, major broking companies, were just emerging. They were buying local brokers. And uh, so it, it, it was a period when there was a lot of interest from the City of London in Australia in a whole range of fields. So what, what do you see? It's probably very hard to summarise, but what do you see as the big differences as a broker working in Sydney now compared to back when you started in the late 60s, 70s? Well, in the 60s and 70s, we still had the tariff where the underwriters like QBE, well, it wasn't QBE, it was Queensland Bankers and Traders and United and uh, NZI and companies like that um, basically set the, uh, set the premiums each year. There was simply no opportunity to go outside of that tariff until finally the insurance company of North America, which is now Cigna, came in and wrote uh, a proportion of some of the broker's risks that basically led to the um, non-tariff section of the business and that opened up the market for the brokers and it opened up the market completely and so in today's world and that opened up the opportunities for brokers to design policy wordings and create reinsurance facilities in London and a whole range of things that previously had been unheard of in, in Australia so it changed the entire face of, of Australia. Some of the very big accounts like CSR were still directly with the United or with one of the insurers simply because they had a common chairman. That all changed. And so today, in a funny way, it's far less risk orientated in terms of brokers. Uh, the brokers basically are constrained to a certain extent by market limitations. There is a much stronger uh, control by um, APRA of the insurance market, which the previously wasn't or wasn't in the same way. So it's a different kind of market where the clients really require detailed um, assessment from their broker in terms of ESG, a whole lot of action activities that basically government regulations and and the issue of ESG is, has affected the capacity of certain insurers to underwrite risks for clients that basically happen to be in part, in, a, in an area which is no longer considered to be acceptable in terms of investment. So it's a huge um, 
obligation on the brokers to to be able to um, to match their their customers' uh, requirements in this emerging market, and the skills of the brokers are going to be absolutely preeminent in doing that. Robin, I feel like we could talk for a very long time, but we need to get armchairs and some brandy Absolutely. and cigars. But thanks very much for spending time with IB Talk. Thank you. And Robin Nisbet is director and founder of Armstrong Nisbet Insurance Brokers, which was just acquired by BMS Group. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts.